0: If I have a bad day on the golf course, and it seems that that is increasingly so. (laughs) And someone asked me about, hey, Eric, how'd that go? Uh, If I'm feeling cynical that day, I'll I'll give the same kind of an answer. It goes something like this. Well, you know, my, my driving wasn't very good. When I hit the ball off the tee, I didn't hit it very well. And then my approach shots to the green They were lacking today. I didn't hit any greens and they they really were, there was only 18 bad approaches to the greens. And then my chip shots to get onto the green, they were ridiculous and my putting was horrible. Other than that, it was a nice round of golf, you know, because that's all the elements there are to golf. Or maybe more seriously, and we all have a yearning to encourage our friend, we find out that our friend's going through a, sad time in a dark valley and we say to ourselves i'm going to go over and encourage them so we go over and we say oh dear friend i love you what's wrong and they start into it and they say you know i'm being thundered in my mind with regret and remorse about decisions i've made in my past we keep listening then they say I am so concerned about this present moment and all that is going on in the culture, in my life, the circumstances that I am facing in a broken world. I'm really troubled by this present moment. And then they go on to say, when I look at the calendar and I think about 2023 and I think about 2030 and I think about 20... My heart is filled with fear, foreboding thoughts about what will be for me. And you, having listened to that with a keen desire to encourage your friend, say to yourself, well, this is easy. There appear to be only three things wrong. They're very troubled about their past. The present is really bedeviling them. And the future is driving them crazy. Other than that, they're having a very good life. What do we do? All of life is wrapped up in several bases that we must cover. World Series is over. Any baseball fans here? What has dropped into vernacular speech, common speech that we use, is this phrase, well, we better have all the bases covered It actually comes from the duty of the pitcher in baseball, who before he is to to deliver the ball, needs to take note of what's going on on the bases. And being attentive to the bases, we would argue, we can coach him, make sure the bases are covered, and then deliver your pitch. Uh, And so we use that phrase, make sure the bases are covered. One of the glories of knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior is coming to the realization that he is so sufficient that he's covered all of the bases. All of the bases are covered. As we come into Romans chapter 5, you say, Eric, what is he doing in Romans chapter 5? What he is telling us is God has covered all all of the bases for us in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ we find someone so sufficient that would lead people following Jesus to write choruses like Christ is all I need. How could that be true unless in him we find that all the bases are covered. To use that little phrase from colloquial speech, vernacular speech, common English speech that we use is to understand what's going on in Romans chapter 5. You'll remember Romans 1, 2, and 3. We could summarize it by Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You say, Eric, that's bad news. Well, it is, but it positions us to receive the good news about Jesus Christ our Lord because God in Christ provided everything that we need to have our lives be made right with him. And so Abraham is brought out as the illustration. Remember, Abraham is a pagan, disinterested in God, living a godless life. And God comes to him and reveals himself to him. And Abraham's life is changed as he believes the promise. In fact, Abraham is made right with God. That's what that big old $6 theological word that we're going to run across justified. That's what that term means. Abraham's life was made right with God. He got right with God because God made him right with himself himself. By giving him the gift of righteousness, which came to Abraham when he believed. That's Romans chapter 4. So now in Romans chapter 5, what Paul's doing is he's describing the glories of what it means to believe in Jesus. Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2. This morning, I'm just going to begin. He talks about seven, seven glories involved in knowing Jesus. This morning, I'm just going to talk about three from the first two verses of Romans 5. We'll come back to the others next week, the Lord willing. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God here, the word of the Lord. Now, I want to go two different directions in studying these verses with you in the precious treasure, the word of God. First, I want to affirm what the Bible affirms, and that is this. Jesus Christ is all that we need for life and godliness. Now, I'm not asking you to buy it yet, but you need to understand that that's exactly what the scripture affirms, that there's something unique and glorious about Jesus. He's an adequate and sufficient and great Savior. But secondly, I want to describe then, Eric, why would anyone say that about Jesus? I want to answer that question for you in three different ways from Romans 5, 1 and 2. Why would anyone say, Christ is all I need? In 1978, Dr. Paul Dixon was made the president of Cedarville University. He had a great run of 25 years. Often when he would speak in chapel on Monday, he would end chapel the same way every Monday. We would all stand, and uh, some of you who had the privilege of going there remember that he would take flight Acapella singing Christ is all I need. There was a particular way he would lead it uh, with his right arm. That was then by wags in male dorms throughout the campus. You know, they would, they would stand up and they would mock how he did it. Uh, but uh, we celebrated Christ is all I need. As he finished his run in the great days of convocation that recognized that, that's how they all ended. Christ is all I need. Need. Now well, that's what scripture affirms. Come with me to look at one other passage that says that. It's second Peter 1, 2, and 3. Second Peter 1, 2, 3. If, we, if Peter was here, we'd say, Peter, what should we conclude about Jesus? Peter would tell us this Jesus Christ is all that we need for life and godliness in this old broken world. Here's what he says. 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3. It's the same thing Paul says in Romans 5. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter could have written that chorus, Christ is all I need. That's what he's getting at with 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3. Romans chapter 4, he talks about God makes us righteous. He gives us this standing that makes us acceptable as we believe in Jesus Christ. And notice what scripture affirms. Power has been granted to us and given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter would say Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior. You see, a lot of folks are asking the question. Mounts, you drone on about Jesus and you say these things. And I'm experiencing real life in a broken world. Take a 26-year-old young lady growing up trying to figure out if she's going to spend the rest of her days committed to Jesus Christ. A day and age which is so sexually charged. A day and age of hookup culture. A day and age where her body is objectified by men addicted to pornography. And she's soldiering forward in an age where young men have ceased to be on a quest to lay themselves down in a committed life of faithfulness to their wife early on and walk together in life making family life together. And she says to herself, look look at the world. Look at how I'm viewed. Look at what it's like to be a single woman 26 years old growing up. It's not only she that's asking the question. It's also 30 year old young fathers who are changing diapers and, Listening to their wives and trying to remember what life was like before kids, by the way, it passes as a nanosecond when it's over. But you look at life and life feels different. You run into couples fifteen years out in marriage, who look at each other across the room and say, Well, I, I remember once when you know there was like vivid life in this marriage and oh, you know, where are we now? What does this mean? What does Jesus have to, I mean, is he sufficient for my marriage? You look at a guy who's raging through his 30s. His career is expanding. He's trying to reach for what he anticipated. And he has the blahs. And he's wondering if, This is worth it if he's reaching for the right things. And all the while, he goes to church and we sing a hymn, King of Kings. We listen to the preacher and he says to himself, you know, at the end of the day, is Christ sufficient to satisfy my deepest longings at this season of my life? Take a lonely widow. Who spends another evening at home in a quiet house, sitting in a chair, listening to the tick-tock of the clock that's been up there for years. Asking, is Christ all I need? Is he sufficient? The single man soldiering forward in obscurity. He's at work doing his duty under the Lord. Feels nobody's noticing what I'm doing. If I didn't even show up tomorrow, would anybody even notice? And then they leave work and feel that way socially and wonder, where's my life going? What does it mean to know Jesus? And does it matter? Is he sufficient? The clear affirmation from Scripture, notwithstanding all those good questions... That people feel existentially living in this old broken world, the clear affirmation of Scripture is we have in Jesus Christ all that we need for life and godliness. But Eric, how could that be so? Give me something else that I can stand on. It's one thing to say, yes, that's what the Scripture affirms, but I need to feel the affirmation of Scripture deep within my spirit. What, how is Christ all that I need? Let's turn there. In what ways can Christ be conceived of as sufficient for all of life? Why be made right with God through receiving Jesus Christ as Savior? Are we play acting here? Are we just playing pretend, some of us better than others? Or does Jesus Christ have something relevant to say to our lives? There's three ways in which Christ proves a sufficient Savior. Number one, knowing Jesus resolves the tension we have with our past, which can be haunting. And let's face it, since it's just us kids, let's be honest with each other. All of our pasts are imperfect and due for God's judgment because that's who we are in our father, Adam. Knowing Jesus Christ resolves the tension we have with our past. Do you know how many people live with guilt They may call it something else. They may try to push it away. But in their heart of hearts, they live with guilt. They live with a sense of shame that they mask. They they live with remorse. They live in the dark recesses of their minds playing reruns of where they've been. And by the way, all of us have been in places that need to be redeemed, beginning with me. And that's the glory, the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. We have the nagging memory of where we've been. The lament. This can cause all kinds of havoc to a person's emotional state, to their mental stability, to their mental health. Some are mystified by suicide. Suicide is tragic. Some of us have experienced that in our network. It's tragic. And it is puzzling to try to figure out why did they do that? But for me, it's just a little less mystifying. Because God did not create us to sin He created us to live in fellowship with Him. And so, like a gasoline engine, as C.S. Lewis said, is designed to run on gasoline, we were designed to run on obeying our Lord and living in fellowship with Him. And when we live by breaking the law of God, The engine doesn't run like it runs when we have the fuel of obedience and a yearning to please the Lord by running our life in such a way. And so the engine begins to break down and people experience naturally. And guilt is actually a gift from God that tells us something is wrong. Designed to be used by the Holy Spirit to bring us to where all guilt is resolved at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Where no longer do we have to carry around the burden of our sin. I love the picture John Bunyan painted. Remember, he's 12 years in Bedfordshire in the prison underneath the bridge in town. Some of you have probably been there. And he wrote Pilgrim's Progress during that incarceration. And as old Christian gets to Mount Calvary, The heavy weight of his sin, he starts up the mount. Every step he takes, the weight of his sin falls off his back, and it rolls down the hill. Some of us know exactly what John Bunyan was talking about, and it's drawn us to be committed to that one who died for us to make that liberation possible. We don't have to carry around the millstone of our past. You say, Eric, you don't understand where I've been. Well, here's what I understand. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You've gone to no place where the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse away our sin and bring us into lily-white fellowship with him in the gift of righteousness. What a Savior! What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When God awakens us to our sin, we feel a sense of war. The apostle Paul elsewhere talks about being an enemy of God, an enemy of God, that our sin has made us God's combatant. By the way, you don't want to be God's combatant. But God paved the way, as I'm praying for Ukraine, I love that phrase and I think of it often in Psalm 46. He makes wars to cease. You talk about a war he brought to cease, it was the war that our sin brought humanity against God himself. But he made that war to cease. By pouring out his just condemnation against our sin on Jesus Christ at the cross. So now we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's extraordinary. In the 70s, Don Richardson, as a young global mission partner, was sent out. And he went with his wife and unknown to him, a stroke of God's genius, they had a little baby. And when they first went to Erie and Jaya on the other side of Papua New Guinea, New Guinea, north of Australia, over in Asia, when they first went upstream to get out of the boat, the village is looking, seeing white men, what an anthropologist might call an indigenous pre-modern group or in a former day, when it was not politically incorrect, they'd say, you know, there's a prehistoric, you know, group there. Uh, so they moor up in a little vessel on the water and he's holding his son and he gets out of the boat. Well, they began to be fascinated by this white man family living with them. They thought they were special and they built a dwelling and they lived right right in the little village. And, and Don Richardson mastered their language and was talking to him. He began to talk to him about Jesus. They had zero interest, zero understanding. And he was at wit's end thinking, this is not working. And it got worse. A war broke out. A neighboring village came and uh, started a war with them. And I mean, it's, it's uh, bow and arrow stuff. And they're flying around his place. And he thought, good night. I mean, I got to talk to these people. And he went to the leaders and he said, look, I'm leaving unless you stop this war. And so uh, he went back to the place, and, and, and there was a convocation. It was something like he'd never seen. They came to an open space, and all the warriors from one tribe came, the one they were warring with. And then all the warriors from the tribe that he was with came out. And in that moment where they both met, the chief of his tribe went to a nursing mother and took from her breast an infant, held the infant up, brought the infant over, and handed the infant to the warriors from the other tribe who turned around and walked away. And Richardson was flummoxed by, what just happened? Why would they do something so cruel? He could hear the plaintiff wail of the mother who had lost this infant. And he went and says, what are you doing? What does this mean? Oh, they said. That's the peace child. What? That's the peace child. What in the world is a peace child? Oh, in our tradition, when a child is given up, then what was once war is now peace between those parties as long as that child lives in that village. It was then that Richardson realized that God was opening a wide door to explain Jesus Christ to them. And he said, we need to sit down and talk. So they got all the elders together. And he said, I have the most amazing announcement. God has sent a peace child. And the war can be over today. And all of our transgressions are resolved in the offering of this peace child. Immediately they understood and revival broke out among the village. It was an extraordinary story. The peace child, Don Richardson. Some of you have read it. All of us have a past that's imperfect. Some of us carry that around, and it is bedeviling to us. And it's like a two-ton anvil that we're dragging around with a chain in life because it's never been resolved. I have the best news for you. God sent his son to resolve it once and for all, forever and ever. And we can resolve it as we receive Christ as our savior. And it can be finished. This is why he said, before he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, on the cross, the next to the last thing Jesus said is, it is finished. The debt is finished has been paid. I lived in Michigan for six years, Andy and our children, and there was a family life radio out of Tucson, Arizona, who had a repeater in Midland, Michigan, and they'd they'd broadcast their signal, and every Saturday at 1 o'clock, they had what was called record request time. That's how long ago it was, late, late 80s. So people would call in, hey, I want to hear this song. You know, that's before all the streaming where just... We sit wherever we are and listen to whatever we want to. Well, every Saturday at 1 o'clock, the program would come on. There was a little jingle for the program. And then, before they would even talk, they always played one song. There was a Nazarene family who were singing during that time. They kind of had a, a rise, and, and I don't know if they're still singing, probably someplace. But anyway, they were called the tallies, uh, the singing tallies. And they had a little song called How to get past your past. And it was one of these ballad songs where, you know, the guy stops, the lead singer, and he tells, you know, about an eight-minute story, and he comes back to the song and finishes. But anyway, uh, it was the story of overcoming our past through knowing Jesus. The reason they played it every Saturday at 1 o'clock was that the switchboard would light up incessantly with the same request of the same song to be played every Saturday. And so they just, hey, we're going to take that out of play right away. So they would begin their program playing that song. Because there is a hunger in humanity to get past our past. One of the glories of Jesus is it gets all resolved. There is no condemnation to them that are in. Christ Jesus we're all sophisticated social creatures we understand what's going on all the time in relationships we can walk into a room and we can ju- we can feel your reconciliation we can sense anger you know you know, and the, the pop culture phrases you know read the room idiot you know figure out what's going on but I don't know about you but when I know that there is aught between me and another person I'm not comfortable around them. I'm uncomfortable. And that uncomfortable drive moves me to resolve whatever's going on because that's a lot better than what I'm feeling inside. God made a means for our broken relationship with him to be healed, and Paul is celebrating it in Romans 5 right here. Therefore, since we have justified, been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Billy Graham wrote "Peace with God in the '60s. Two million copies in 38 languages later. Some people are still reading that book out of a hunger to have peace with God. It is a thing, and it is available because God is gracious. And that would bring me to the question this morning, of course, do you have peace with God through believing in Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your savior? Have you acknowledged your sin and further acknowledge the glory of his son who resolves our sin through his sufficient death? Be reconciled to God. Knowing Jesus resolves the tension we have with our past. Do you have a sense that as a culture, we're covered over with peace, we have all that we need? Or rather, do you have the sense that uh, we could not be more anxiety-ridden and haunted by our past? We're the restless ones, plus uh, filled with anxiety, are we not? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. But it's better than that. Another way that Christ proves that he's sufficient is knowing Jesus infuses our present with grace and help. Look at the second part of verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Jesus has given us access to an unceasing fountain of help. I don't know about you, but I need a CC fountain of help. Access to grace, that's unmerited favor. I was at a church once, and we had a contemporary Christian artist there, and they were all concerned. I mean, all these people have a following, and everybody wants a piece of them, and they're trying to get to them. And so we had to figure out a green room and a secure place and yada, yada, yada. Well, and, and I went to a meeting was a pre-meeting for how this was all going to go down, and they handed me a lanyard. I said, what what is this for? Oh, you need this. What is it? I looked at it. All access pass. It's like, if you want to go downstairs and get through security and go wherever you want to, you'll, you'll need this. I actually thought it was a little overkill. But... What's better than getting downstairs and having access to a conversation with contemporary artists is we've been given in Christ access to a fountain of grace. Wow. An unceasing wellspring of what we desperately need is available in Jesus Christ. You say, Eric, I, you don't know what I'm facing. Well, I know what you have if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are standing in grace. Favor that we get from God. Isn't that what we want? I, I often pray for my children. Lord, bless them. Bring your favor to them, to their professional responsibilities, to their marriage. And I'm praying, I'm asking for favor. Here's what we get in Jesus. Favor. Favor standing in favor you you've heard the phrase and uh, I, I think actually george herbert walker bush said it once at a, a, a at a press conference you know uh, we can come upon a circumstance and isn't the phrase um, you know we're we're neck deep in doo-doo well this is another kind of neck deep that provides a foundation for our living that is absolutely extraordinary is life in a broken world easy? No, it's not. It actually is difficult. It's broken. We'll have issues to face this week. But you know how we face them? We face them neck deep in grace. And we've been given access to this. This is not something that somebody else has that we couldn't have. No, we, in an extraordinary way, we can face this moment with This standing that we've been given in Jesus, grace. It's a certain confidence that we can have about grace. What did Luther say? Here I stand, so help me God. That needs to be our mantra when we get out of bed in the morning. Here I stand with this access to grace, this unceasing wellspring of the Lord's provision of help, and I can do today. I can get through what is before me today in this present moment. God's grace has this present moment. There's a pop culture expression, oh, you've got this. Well, many of us are facing things in life, let's face it, we don't got, and we can't get. But Christ has this, and we've been given access to grace, and we can get through this. Remember the line in, great is thy faithfulness, strength for today? We'll go next, bright hope for tomorrow. What are you facing today? Here's what's available. Remember what's said of Jesus in John 1, 16. What we get in him is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Say, Eric, I'm really needy today. Well, if you are, you're just like me. And I feel that need. I have a yearning for God to do things that only he could do in these moments that we have together. But my hope that something might be accomplished is standing in grace. And It is abundant and we have free access. Knowing Jesus Christ shapes how we live through the present moment and what we're facing. Finally, knowing Jesus delivers us from the fear of a foreboding future. Look at the second part of verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Notice that Jesus Christ is giving us a cause for joy. This changes our emotional calculus. Why are we rejoicing? Because of all that we have in Jesus Christ. And it identifies one commodity rather clearly, and that is we have in him great hope. Now, that's not wish fulfillment. Oh, I hope this will happen by Wednesday. I hope this. No, this is about a certain conviction, not a maybe. It's a certain confidence and expectation in the realization of going to attain what God has promised. It reshapes how we look at the future. Think of the old gospel hymn, Since Jesus Came Into My Heart. I'm now possessed by a hope that is steadfast and sure since Jesus came into my heart. And notice that possession of that hope changes our disposition. We're full of rejoicing. My professor in seminary, and no doubt he was speaking of dill pickle juice it said, why is it that most of the body of Christ looks like in the last five minutes they've just been weaned off of pickle juice? You know, how could it be that we are not people with full-hearted joy, rejoicing in the hope that it's ours? You say, Eric, you don't understand about the, our culture. I'm deeply concerned about our culture, but that does nothing to the certainty of our hope which according to Romans 5 two, is a cause for rejoicing so that I'm not rejoicing in this cultural moment, but I'm rejoicing in what is mine in Christ that will be realized and you can rejoice as well if you know Christ as your savior. So many live in a foreboding fear of the future and what it will bring. That can be especially true if you faced a really difficult, hard thing. Because it kind of scars your spirit such that you're a little gun-shy and you're always waiting, when is the next shoe going to drop? That's distant from what Paul's talking about in Romans 5.2. The certainty of this hope of the glory of God reshapes how we look at the future. It's said in Proverbs 31.25, that Lady Wisdom looked at the future and she smiled. Who do you know today who is smiling at the future? Say, what was wrong with her? Well, she hadn't read the news lately. There's something more going on about Lady Wisdom's glance into the future with a robust sense of hope that made her smile. You know what godly people do looking in the future? They smile. And that smile is from their soul and the disposition of their soul because of hope. They really do believe that Christ's tomb was empty and that has implications for them or to use Gaither's words, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. A robust sense of hope. We're back to the lyric from Great is Thy Faithfulness, grace for the day, and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Please note that this is more than, well, yeah, Eric, this hope delivers us from fear. Are you afraid of the future? I know the world is uncertain. I know that tomorrow doesn't promise anything but don't miss the fact that our Savior promises a great tomorrow and a sufficient today and a resolution to where we've been. What a Savior. Glory is before us. Of all people, we can rejoice We have a hope-filled future. When we have peace with God, whatever the future holds will resolve well. Cannot it be said of life, whether you have a terminal diagnosis, are in desperate financial straits, have parental issues that are cutting you in half, have real questions about your career and your future, cannot... It be said of us, if we know Jesus Christ as Savior, this is going to finish well. I've been around several folks who are in threatening surgeries. I mean, the kind that the surgeon comes in and spends a long time with you and says, now, before you sign this, you need to understand this. I'm going here in your body, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to threaten this, and your system's like this, and this system may go down, and it may cascade You may not come through this surgery, but you need this surgery. So you decide, and you let me know what you want to do. And they resolve, okay, I'm going to have the surgery. And I've been with them, and I've found it so edifying and so encouraging. The best of them will look at me and say, look, however this turns out, I'm okay. The worst that can happen is that I would die. But I believe in Jesus and have peace with God. I can face the future with hope and even joy. This is a win-win for me. Get through surgery. Make a recovery. Go down in surgery. Go to be present with our Lord. I can't lose. Give me that clipboard. I'm signing it. Let's go to surgery. Don't you dare let the future tie you into a knot. We have hope. Don't you dare let the present paralyze you. We have Jesus. Don't you dare live in debilitation of spirit because of your past. We have the cross. It's now finished. We are made brand new in knowing Jesus. Father, what a Savior. What a glory to know you. Bring us vividly afresh to it this morning as we sing, as we consider having a responsive heart to you. Thank you that you know each one of us. You know what we need. Hear us as we pray. Pray the lyrics of this song. Bring our spirits out to you. Work in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name.